is an old proverb maybe you've heard before. It comes out of India. It's kind of famous about five blind men and an elephant. It's not a joke. It's a proverb. <laughs> Anybody heard this one before? A couple. It's a classic example of, of kind of how we perceive the world. The, the, the story goes this way. The, the five blind men have never come into contact with an elephant before. They don't know what an elephant is. And one day they're brought to an elephant and they go up and because they're blind, they're not looking at it. They're experiencing the elephant through touch. And so one goes up, feels the trunk, says, wow, the elephant is like a large snake. Another one feels the leg. Oh, the, the elephant is like a huge tree. Another one feels the tusk. The elephant is like a, a pointed spear. One feels the tail. Well, the elephant is like a rope. And another one feels the side of the elephant and thinks the elephant is like a big, sturdy wall. The point of the proverb, in, in usually as it's used, is, is this idea that, that everybody has a perspective that's limited. And, and at some point in the proverb, these blind men are told, why don't you talk? Because maybe you all have a partial experience and you would understand the elephant better if you put all your experiences together. And so the common kind of worldly wisdom is we all see a slice of truth. We need to listen to everybody else's truth and put it all together. And then we'd have a better picture of the truth. And this is often used to talk about how all religions just look at things in different ways. Now, here's the problem. If I put together a, a tree trunk, a spear, a snake, a rope, and a wall, I'm not picturing an elephant. Those partial pictures, when put together, do not equal an accurate, complete picture of the elephant. They are still wrong. So, so the answer in life is not just to combine different perspectives and put them all together and then we'll understand. The answer is somebody who knows what an elephant is needs to go to these five guys and say, this is what an elephant is. Let me give you the big picture of the elephant. Then and only then will they understand. If we apply this to our lives, the elephant is the world around us, our, our lives, our reality, however you want to say it. Everything that is, is kind of the elephant. And we're all like blind people putting our hand on a little bit of it saying, oh, I've got all this figured out. I, I know everything there is to know about the world because I've experienced this tiny little sliver. Or we say, well, I don't have it all figured out. So I'm going to listen to you and listen to you and listen to you. And I'll put all this together. And now I'll have it all figured out. But each one of us has a very limited experience. And I wonder if these men, when they finally experience the elephant and they say, well, the elephant's like a tree. I kind of thought the elephant was more. Or he's like a rope. I, I kind of thought the elephant would be more. Have you ever had that feeling that there must be something more? We have this limited experience and, and we're left kind of dissatisfied and we feel like maybe there would be more. And then the world comes in and says, well, let me fill in the picture for you. I have more to give to you. And we try to satisfy that longing for more with technology, money, success. Maybe change your spouse and then you'll be happy. Certain addictions, 
change your sexuality, change your gender. All of these are an effort to feel something more, to feel something different, to make up for what we're lacking. But we need to accept that we are all experiencing a very narrow slice of all there is. And we need to be careful that we don't just define the whole based on our little slice of it. But that raises the question, then, who gets to decide? Who gets to say, this is the elephant? If we're all a bunch of blind men touching the elephant and describing it in terms of our personal experience, how dare one of us say, well, my experience is better than your experience? I somehow have it all figured out. There's another component of this proverb I came into uh, to understand this week that I hadn't come into contact with before. And it was that before they went to see the elephant, they all had heard about an elephant. And they had come up with this idea of what an elephant was before they got there. One had heard that they were strong and they were used to clear forests. So they thought, you know, they must be a, a giant, powerful thing. Another one heard that princesses would ride on the backs of elephants as they traveled. And they thought, well, they must be these beautiful, gracious things. One heard that they were used in battles and pierced men with their, their pointed horn. And thought, it must be a ferocious battle machine. One heard about an elephant and didn't even believe they existed. That's foolishness. And, and the story goes on that when they got to touch the elephant, the one who thought the elephant was strong and powerful touched the side of it and said, I was right. The elephant is strong and powerful. The one who touched the tail said, well, this is just a rope. Someone is fooling me. I was right. The elephants don't exist. They've just given me a rope to feel. This is a lie. And so on and so forth. It's an interesting spin on the story because it brings in this idea that we all interpret our experiences through assumptions we've already made. We make up our mind what is true, what is real, what is right, what is wrong, and then we filter everything through that lens. We all see the world through a set of lenses. Whether you wear glasses or contacts or not, you have this lens called your world view. And this worldview determines what you accept as real, true, good, right, or wrong. And we all have this without even realizing it often. Things we've heard, things we've experienced, things we've been taught. And we put all of this into our worldview. And so when someone comes along that has a different experience, different background, and they say, well, the elephant is this way, we say, that's absurd. I've experienced it this way, so you must be wrong. We see this all the time in our world, don't we? People just clashing and fighting each other. I've experienced this way, so it must be this way. Well, I've experienced it this way. Well, I hate you because your experience is different than mine. And I've got to fight for my experience to justify who I am and what I've experienced. And this goes on and on and on. And in quiet moments... We think about our lives and what we've experienced or what we're going through. And maybe this isn't you right now, but for some of you, maybe it is. And you're struggling with that feeling like there must be something more. Yeah, on the one sense, I'm fighting to justify my experience. But on the other sense, like, there's this emptiness. And I'm looking for something more. And we're living in a world that is like a factory producing things to fill those voids in our life. Which brings us to our passage today. Open up to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 8 through 15. 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the, the chair somewhere in front of you, underneath the chair. Uh, feel free to use those. I haven't said this in a while, but if, if you really don't have a Bible, take that one. Just steal it. It's fine. Um, one condition, you just you need to read it. Take it. It's our gift. It's, I guess it's not stealing if I say you can take it and it's a gift. Whatever makes you feel like you want to take it. Colossians chapter 2 verses 8 through 15. And let me start by reading verses 6 and 7. We covered this last week, but it's important to bring into the context here. So then, this is Colossians 2, 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This is Paul's kind of transition in this letter. He just summed up all of chapter 1 and the rest of chapter 2 by talking about continuing to live in Jesus Christ. You received Christ through the gospel. You learned about him. You accepted him. And he's referred to that throughout the first part of this letter. Now he's in transitioning to the rest of the letter where he's going to talk about keep going in Christ. Keep on trusting in Jesus Christ. But here in this passage, as he reminds them these things in 6 and 7, he gives them this warning, this challenge and a warning in verse 8. And we want to spend some time here this morning. We'll look at 9 to 15 as as well. But we need to understand verse 8 and what Paul is saying about the lens through which we look at everything. So let's look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, because I believe that Paul is challenging us and even warning us, we must have a Christian worldview. Christianity and the truth of Jesus Christ must be the lens through which we interpret everything else. Look at verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So he's told them, continue in Christ, just as they received him, continue living in him, sink their roots down into him, overflow with thankfulness. That's verses six and seven. And here he's saying, and don't let anything, anything take you off track of keeping your focus on Jesus Christ. It's helpful to catch up what we know about Colossae here. That's the city where Colossians was written to. In case you haven't been here, you don't know the background. This church, this group of believers, they heard the gospel not through Paul. He'd never been there, but through his friend Epaphras. We learn about this in chapter 1. And they believe in Jesus. They accept him as their savior and they're living for him. They, They show evidence in their life that they are changed. They are, in that respect, a good church. But... It seems that Paul has heard that other teachers have come along. Other people have come into the church and said, yeah, that teaching about Jesus, that's, that's good, but I have something else. I have something to add to Jesus. And it seems like they were trying to get them to experience this deeper, greater, kind of more spiritual truth. They were trying to fill this void. You need more than just Jesus. It's what the false teachers we're claiming. And that's exactly what Paul is warning them against. He calls what those men were teaching a, a hollow and deceptive philosophy. And he uses the phrase captive. Don't be taken captive by this hollow and deceptive philosophy. 
Captive is, is exactly what you think. It's the slave trader language of going out and capturing someone or capturing them in a battle and hauling them off against their will. It's a very vivid, almost violent word. And Paul says, this is what's happening to you if you accept this teaching and give into it that somehow Christ isn't enough. You're being captured and hauled away. And he calls that philosophy hollow and deceptive. It is a lie and it is empty. Later in Colossians, he talks about warning against people that judge other believers based on certain kind of spiritual rituals. Well, do you do what I do? Well, if you don't do what I do, then you're not as spiritual as I am. You're not as close to Christ as I am. That's what these false teachers were saying. And Paul says, wait a minute. In Christ, in Christ is got to be our focus. And in Christ, we have to weigh all things. So these Christians in Colossae, I would say, are struggling with a lot of things that we're struggling with. This feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting. I'm, I'm believing. I want to believe. I want to trust in Jesus. But there's got to be something more. And we become very ripe for other people to come along and say, if I got something to tell you, follow Jesus and do all these other amazing spiritual things. And we go, oh, this is so much better. This will do it. This will be greater. But Paul warns them, don't be sucked into this. Don't be taken in by it. It is an empty lie that promises fullness, but is actually empty and leads to a greater emptiness. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you thought, well, if I just got here, if I just got this thing, the situation in my life figured out, if I just got there, then everything would be fine. And you get there and you still have that feeling like, ah, there's got to be something more. That's one of the problems with, with things in our world to fill up that void in our hearts is that it never actually satisfies. And so Paul gives us this framework for properly discerning what we accept as true. How do we build a Christian worldview? What is the lens through which we are to see the world? And he starts with this negative. Don't be taken in by things that depend on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Don't do that. So watch out for that. And then he gives us a positive. We should depend on Christ. So he weighs these two things. Don't be taken in on this or things that depend on worldly things rather than on Christ. Now, what is he talking about here? Depending on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of the world. We can go into each one of those words and kind of talk about what it meant, what it meant for Paul, but I think it's best to keep it all together. These phrases all together, these elemental spiritual forces of the world and the human traditions, it's kind of Paul's way of saying, it's just the way it is. Have you ever heard people say that? Why do you live that way? Well, that's just the way it is. It's just what people do. That's just normal and natural in this world. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, that's not how we are to live. We are not to just simply accept the way things are and the way the world works. That's what he's talking about, these basic principles of the world. Now, if you've been alive long enough, you've seen decades come and go, you've seen some of the basic principles of the world change very often. We go through cycles in society where those things that were so fundamental 10 years later now are rejected. 
I think you see this most vividly in the fashion world. I, I never have understood the fashion world where one thing that is so attractive, like this decade, 10 years later, it is the epitome of ugliness. I don't really care. I mean, you can tell by looking at me. I don't care about fashion. <laughs> but it's an interesting little glimpse into how our world accepts and approves things. It's almost like because that was accepted and approved then, it must be rejected now. And it goes on and on and on. What we see, I think, are these limited experiences of human beings trying to figure out things on their own and telling everybody else, because I figured this out, this is how you must live. This is the new reality and the new truth. Now, this is one way to develop a worldview. We can just listen to everybody around us. We can change as the world changes and as culture changes. We can shift our thinking, shift our worldview, reinterpret things. You can live that way. Like the blind men with their partial and limited experiences, thinking they understand the whole. Or, Paul says, we could have a worldview which depends on Christ. At the end of verse 8, he judges all these other ways of looking at things, and he says they're wrong because they don't have one thing. They don't depend on Jesus Christ. This is the heart and soul of the Christian worldview. The lens through which we are to look at everything in our world is the lens of who Jesus is and what he has done. Who Jesus is and what he has done. Who Jesus is and what he has done. That's the lens through which we are to look at and understand and interpret everything. Whoa, that's a high calling. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Guess what? That's what the rest of Colossians is about. In verses 9 through 15, we're going to look at quickly here in a moment. He applies the Christian worldview to how we see ourselves. In verses 16 to 23 of chapter 20, uh, chapter 2, he applies this to how to judge false teaching. Then in chapter 3, he applies it to how we live our lives, first in general and then in various relationships in our world. And then in chapter 4, he closes with a bunch of personal greetings. But he's talking about how to apply this to our life. How do we see through the lens of Jesus Christ? Christ. We have to get this right. We have to, as Christians, throw out the old way of looking at things and replace it with the lens of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, if the elephant, from my previous example, is the world and everything in it, our lives, our personality, our identities, our reality, the universe, whatever you want to say, who has had the experience big enough to describe the whole thing. Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ alone. There's no man, woman, scientist, historian, philosopher, or even religious leader that has the corner on the market to be able to say, I figured it all out. Only Jesus Christ. Our own understanding will always be limited and will always leave us lacking, wanting something more, something to fill up that void in our life. Paul is passionate about teaching Christians. We see this here in Colossae. We see it in Ephesians. We see it in his other letters. Draw close to Christ. Look at everything in your life, your world, your identity through the lens of Jesus Christ. 
I truly believe this is something as Christians we have got to focus on today. We take spiritual truths, we take the Bible, we take Christianity, we take the gospel, and we add it onto our lives. This already busy, packed full life where we developed our own personality, own view, own ideas on everything, and we add it on. But then we also take some things from the world and say, you know that Oprah, she's pretty smart, and she said this, and I'm going to add that in. Or this other religion over here, my dear Aunt Sally, she's such a sweet person, and she's Mormon, and she says this, I'm going to add that in. And we take all these things, and we add them in, and we think we're so smart because we've added all this in. And we are blind men touching an elephant thinking we know the whole truth. And what we need to do is start by saying, I am probably wrong. And I'm going to take what God says about himself and I'm going to take the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done and reinterpret everything I know. And then I'm going to live that out in my life. And so we need to go on to verses 9 to 15. Because he takes this Christian worldview that he's just introduced in this big picture and now he applies it to how we see ourselves. And I love how he does this. And I hope you can see the pattern here. I'm going to read the passage and I want you to watch how Paul takes the truths about Jesus. He's going to list several of them. And then he's going to say, because Jesus is this or did this, this is how we are to see and understand ourselves. So he's taking theology, truth, and applying it to our lives and how we live. This is what we need to learn to do as we live out the Christian worldview. Verses 9 through 15 of Colossians 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. There's theology, truth about Jesus. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. There's the application. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do you see how for Paul, it's just natural to keep going back and forth between these two ideas. This is who Christ is and what he's done. Therefore, this is what's true of us. And he just keeps intertwining these things. I think so often, especially if you've grown up in the church or, or maybe you just started coming to church and you learn Bible stories like, here's this truth, that's great, but here's my life over here. And like, that's awesome and I trust it and I believe it, but I'm not really sure it has a whole lot to do with my life. Paul won't allow that. He wants us to bring that truth into our lives. Not just to say Jesus was a good person, so you be a good person too. No, it goes much deeper than that. So let's walk through some of these topics that he talks about. And the first thing that he talks about is fullness in Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Does that sound familiar to you? 
If, if you've been here for a couple of weeks, that should sound vaguely familiar to you. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 15, for 15 through 20, we talked about this incredible passage in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, where Paul lays out an in-depth, beautiful theology of who Jesus Christ is. And he says he is absolutely God, absolutely divine, equal to God in all ways. All things were created for him and by him and through him. We completely, totally, and utterly depend on him in every way. And he lays out this theology of Jesus Christ. And his point is, Christ is the fullness of God. So now he's applying that to believers. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Remember what I said about those feelings? And and maybe you haven't experienced this. Maybe you have. That feeling that there must be something more. That opens us up so often to things that we hear or read or we see on the internet. This will fulfill me. This will make me happy. What if we were so totally and completely and utterly convinced that we are already completely full of everything we need in Jesus Christ because he is the fullness of God? Wouldn't that change everything? That's theology in action. That's a Christian worldview because Christ is the fullness of God and I am saved and therefore in Jesus Christ, I have fullness in Jesus Christ. That's the application of theology. We don't need some greater, deeper spiritual truth. We don't need some other ideas about how to be completely satisfied or how to better understand ourselves. We don't need human teaching on human identity or human sexuality, just to use two examples that are current today. These things that promise something more. Maybe this is what's lacking in your life. That's the option being held out to people. That's the option that's being taught to some of our youngest kids in grade school. Maybe this is what will make you happy. And the words of Paul ring in my head, that hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions. New traditions, different traditions, same ideas. This will make you happy. What if we could teach our kids before they ever go into that classroom You were made by Jesus Christ for a purpose and for his glory. And in Christ, you have everything you need and you are full in him. And they could hear those things and go, I don't need that. I got Jesus. I don't need that. This is the pattern of the worldview. Who is Christ? Fullness of God. How does this change how we see ourselves? I am, we are as Christians, full in Jesus Christ. He goes on and talks about the removal of the old self. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self is ruled by the flesh who was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I always look forward to sermons where I get to talk about circumcision. It's just... (laughs) It's a tough one as a pastor, right? I'm not here to explain what circumcision is. Like, I'm I'm not going to put up any pictures or anything, okay? (laughs) Just to be clear, if you don't know, talk to me after class. Um, But, in a nutshell, 
Circumcision was a Jewish ritual. It wasn't just the Jews, but, but uniquely in a special way in the Old Testament, the, God commanded this to the Jews. This was not, this is interesting, this is not a human tradition. God commanded them to circumcise their male children. Old Testament Jewish. Just want to be clear on that. He commanded them as his people. And basically, without going into graphic detail, this was a sign and a reminder of the covenant put in the place where the promise was passed on to future generations. That's as graphic as I'm getting, okay? But it was, it was this constant ongoing reminder for the Jewish people. We are who we are because God reached out to us and brought us into relationship with him. And it was also used as a picture, okay, circumcision involves something being cut away, and it was used as a, a picture and a reminder that there's something in our life that needs to be cut away. This sin in our life needs to be removed so that we can stand in the presence of a holy God. All of this comes out of the Old Testament and is applied by the prophets over and over and over again. We still face this today. We still, whether you're a Christian or not, so many people, maybe not everybody, but so many people struggle with this feeling like something needs to be changed in me. Something's not right. I need to be fixed. And again, the world gives us lots of ways to satisfy that. One of the ways is the world comes along and says, well, don't change, just be who you are. You'll feel better if you just accept who you are. And we look at ourselves and go, some of this is pretty ugly. Yeah, we'll just embrace it. That's one way to deal with it. Another way the world helps us or tries to help us is to change who we are. Change and be someone else, but it's usually with the kind of the parentheses, but change to be who the world says you should be. That's the only valid way to live. And Paul instead points to the change we have in Jesus Christ. He's linking this idea of circumcision, and he brings in baptism. He talks about burial and raising from the dead. If we put all that together, here's what Paul's saying. Your Savior, Son of God, died on the cross, was buried, and raised to new life. So the Christian worldview says, because Jesus did it for me, this is true of me, my old self is dead, buried, and gone. It has been removed. So that feeling that something needs to change, we look at the cross and we say, there's the change. We look at the grave and say, there's the change. He did it for me. Our old self has been removed because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, evidently in the church, we'll see later in future chapters, or future verses rather, some of these false teachers were claiming, it seems, that the Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, needed to go through circumcision. Then they'd be really super spiritual and accepted by God. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, you already have that in Christ. Why do you need something else when you already have it in Jesus Christ? Our old self is done away with in Jesus Christ. And that's great, but, but then we think, okay, well, that, maybe that takes care of my past, but, but I'm looking for something new. I'm looking for something better. And Paul says, you've got that in Christ too. We are raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. 
God made us alive. When we were dead, lost, buried, and gone. And that feeling like, I need something new. I need something different. God comes along and says, let me tell you about my son, Jesus. He died and rose to new life so that you can be raised to new life as well. This is the Christian view of self. We are not who we were because that person, when Christ was crucified, that person was crucified as well. I am a new person because my Savior rose from the grave. And I am in him, trusting in him. I am not who I was. The Christian answer to find yourself is not to figure out what you want and who you were. It's to figure out who Jesus Christ is. Go deeper in who Christ is. You might say, that's great. I'm not who I was. I have new life, but I still struggle with guilt. I want to be a better person and I want to feel better. Paul says we are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Have you ever lived with guilt? That feeling like I just can't get over something I've done or something that somebody else did to me. This feeling that something is wrong with us. And again, the world wants to explain that away. The Christian view is not to just overlook it and explain it away, but to say it's actually true. We should feel guilty about certain things. There are things that are right and things that are wrong. We can't just ignore it. We can't just embrace it. And we can't just blame others. The Christian worldview says this is real. It is sin and sin must be dealt with. And Jesus Christ has dealt with it. Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty, the price that we owed for our sins. And he uses this incredibly vivid image of someone who owes a great amount and has become a slave to pay off this debt that they cannot possibly pay off. And he says, this is who we are apart from Jesus Christ. We are lost and stuck in our sin. We are in debt to God because he created us and we have rebelled against him. But this impossible debt that we must owe has to be seen through the lens of Jesus Christ. I don't have to pay it because Jesus already paid it for me. On the cross, he died in our place. And because God, who or Jesus, who is the fullness of God, died in our place, all of our sins, all of our sins are paid for, canceled, wiped away. We are declared innocent in the court of God's justice, even though we deserve to be guilty because all the price has been paid by Jesus Christ. We think that's great. It's wonderful. Praise God. But but we still struggle sometimes in life. We're still trying to figure out how to get through this situation or go through this time in our culture or we're struggling with something in our life or we're looking at other different religions and we're thinking, maybe I just go over here and bring a little bit of this in. And Paul then goes on and says, we have absolute victory in Jesus Christ. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. This is such a beautiful picture. He goes out to battle and he's victorious. 
and the enemy has to lay down their weapons and they're collected by the army and the other army is collected too and some of them are led back. This was a Roman tradition. They'd be led back into their hometown, the hometown of the king. These people being brought behind them saying, look who we conquered. Remember them? Remember how you were scared of them? Remember how you thought they were out to get us and they were going to triumph over them? We have beat them. Their hands are empty. Their weapons are gone. They have been defeated. And Paul applies this to Jesus Christ. When Christ rose from the grave, he has been given and declared and owned victory over any other power and authority. Anything we look at and say, I'm worried about that. I'm scared about that. I don't know about that. Christ has victory over it already. Because Christ rose from the grave, he has victory over every other power and authority. He has publicly shamed them through his resurrection. Nothing can claim a greater power or greater authority than Jesus Christ. We must see ourselves through the lens of Jesus Christ. We spend our lives looking for fullness or forgiveness or a new and better life, seeking some victory in our life or in our world. But what if we knew and really grasped and understood and trusted, I have all I need in Jesus Christ. And what if that was the lens through which we saw everything in our world and in our lives? Wouldn't that change everything? Wouldn't that be a watershed that changed the direction of our life? That's what Paul is trying to get the Colossians and us today to understand. We are all like those blind men. We think we know so much, but it's just a thin sliver of reality. And we build this great big worldview through which we interpret everything and components of that worldview we've never even thought of, but we've accepted as true because it was given to us by somebody else. But our lens is so limited. And it's been smeared with the dirt and the stain of sin. And we still look through it so often and say, I've got this. I see this clearly. I've got it all figured out. And this world will offer us new sets of lenses over and over and over again, just like the fashion industry. Every couple years, every decade, every generation or so, here's some new lenses, put these on, and you will see everything clearly. Being a Christian, though, is not just about adding different truths to our lives. It's about throwing out the old lens and putting on something completely new and saying, I will see through the truth of Jesus Christ. Did Christ die? Then only in Christ can we be saved. Did he raise from the dead? Then only in Christ can we have new life. Is he actually God? Then only in Christ can we experience the fullness that is ours through him. When we do this, when we put on the lens of the truth of Jesus Christ, we will better understand the words of the old hymn. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us the true lens of Jesus Christ. Give us the worldview 
that helps us to see everything through the truth of who Jesus is. May we be so satisfied with who we are through Jesus Christ that we will understand we don't need to turn to anything else. We will see those things for what they are, hollow and deceptive. Father, so often we have come to accept such a limited, tiny picture of who Jesus is. And then we get in moments where we're so dissatisfied. And so often we blame you. Or we blame others, or we blame ourselves. But God, if we could come to your word hungry, with eyes and hearts willing to learn, if we would be willing to challenge the things that we have accepted as true in the light of who you are and what you've done, then God, I truly believe that would be a watershed that would change our lives. And then if we would live that out in our relationships and in our world, as Paul goes on to talk about in Colossians, I truly believe that would be a watershed that changes this world. And so, Father, challenge what we have accepted through the light of your truth that we might see clearly through the lens of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. In his name we pray. Amen.